Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Earlier this year, Columbia hosted a conversation between two iconic public figures, billionaire investor and Columbia Business School alum Warren Buffett and Microsoft founder Bill Gates. For that conversation, Buffett and Gates sat down with PBS and Bloomberg TV host Charlie Rose to discuss their friendship, philanthropy, business, innovation, and leadership. You're about to hear some highlights from that talk. If you're interested in hearing the entire talk, we've included a link to that in the show notes for this episode. So, without further ado, here's Charlie Rose. These two guys sitting next to me I've known for a long time. I've probably done more interviews with the two of you than anyone else. I... I, I certainly know that I always came away, one, having fun, and two, learning something. And my guess is so will you this afternoon. They represent two different generations, but they represent a kind of essential friendship. Uh, as Bill has said, it was instantaneous uh, when they first met that they knew they would be great friends. What is it that you two share? What makes this friendship so satisfying for both of you? Well, I think we both certainly share a curiosity about the world, and we come from two different but related worlds. Uh, so we had, I think we probably spent about 10 hours of this one-hour visit that Bill was scheduled on July 5th, 1991. <laughs> His mother had to talk him into it. And uh, uh, we weren't halfway, I mean, we had gotten no place in terms of our eventual agenda just in, in that time. In fact, the governor of Washington came by, and Bill's dad had to come into the bedroom and pull us out of it. We didn't want to. He was a little embarrassed we were talking about. It's, well, we have fun to start with. Right? I mean, that, uh, every relationship should have a lot of fun in it. And, and we, we, we find the world in just such an interesting place. So we like to compare notes on it. When we have compare notes, we have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, I think curiosity, uh, which Warren mentioned, is a an amazing thing where you try and predict what's going to happen and then uh, when it doesn't you sort of think well uh, you know that uh, drug didn't get invented that stock didn't go up that uh, approach wasn't popular what's what is it about my model of the world that's wrong you know who could I talk to what could I read and and the things that have happened since 1991 uh, mostly good things yeah. uh, have been amazing and just, you know, so much fun to talk about. Uh, you know, so, you know, it, we read the news and we think, God, what did Warren yeah. think about that? Uh, the other thing that, that you share other than reading is optimism. Uh, you believe in America. Absolutely. You, know, you have said to me more than once, uh, I would give up a year of my life just to know what the next 50 is going to be like. Yeah, even the next four now, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you pick four? <laughs> I don't know, just number that came to me. <laughs> the, uh, uh, it, is, it is just fascinating what's yeah. happened just in my lifetime, you know, yeah. in, in the 86 years. I, I should mention one thing about reading. Uh, it was at the library here at Columbia yeah. that I wish I spent probably more time than any other uh, student. Uh, I, I, I lived there practically. But, you know, I pulled the book out there. Happened to be who's in America, and it 
told me something about my professor, Benjamin Graham, and then I looked up and I went to the library and I said, I want to look more, learn more about this because I learned this over here. That changed my whole life. You know, we own Geico now <laughs> uh, because of, uh, of that librarian directing me to some other book and then following through on that. I, it's the chance, I, I, I read about one-fifth the pace that Bill does, but I still spend five or six hours a day reading. I mean, it just, you can learn so much. I particularly love biography, just uh, you know, to be able to live the lives of these people that have been so, see them so extraordinary, the lessons and the, you know, the discouragements they face, just everything about it. So I just, I, you can't get enough of reading. At, uh, what surprises you most about Bill? Uh, that's an interesting question. I guess what really surprised me initially is we just found so many things to connect on. But, uh, uh, he did try to sell me a computer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was, that's probably the only sale he didn't make, although the computer changed my life for the better in a big way subsequently. But, uh, well, he, he, he just had the same curiosity. Yeah. That, uh, and the other word you have used is focus. Well, the focus is no question mm -hmm. about it. I mean, he, yeah. both of us, got to where we are in a big, big way because of focus. Bill, what surprised you about Warren? I was so amazed that he comes to investing with this broad model of the world. So one of the first questions he asked me was, hey, Microsoft's a small company, IBM's this huge company. Why can you do better? Why can't they uh, beat you at the software game that you're playing? And I, I always... You know, you know, every day I was thinking about, okay, what, what advantage do we have? What do we do? But nobody ever asked me that question. And we talked about the economics of software, which is a you know, very uh, different and special thing. And he could relate it to things that he'd seen. And, you know, I didn't understand banking, why some get ahead and some don't. And so he was able to put that in very uh, clear terms. And so I, I found somebody whose model was rich enough that it, it helped me understand things that I really wanted to know, and we could laugh about things that were a surprise to us. I'd say his humility and his sense of humor really stood out in this incredible way. I mean, he enjoys what he does, and he shares that with other people. And even you know, when I ask questions that are pretty naive that he's probably been asked 50 no, times, he's very nice about, well, it took me a long time to figure this out, Bill, but here's how it works. <laughs> I, I tried Bill out with some non-transitive dice, and I read about him in Scientific American or someplace, and there were only two people in the world in the history of these dice that actually figured it out while I was trying to take their money from them. And one was the leading symbolic logician in the world, and the other was a drunk who didn't really know any better and asked the wrong question. But Bill said, wait a second, you choose first, and the game was over. <laughs> All right, we've got a lot of questions. We want to talk from the audience. So I'd like to ask, so what both of you do involves a lot of risk. And sometimes you have to face the fear of failure with that risk. So I'm asking, how did you overcome that fear, and what steps did you take to do that? You know, I think it's great to be risk-taking, uh, particularly when you're young, trying out different things, fields that you know, aren't very popular that you might enjoy. But I never got into a position where I, I was taking, a, uh, actually in any meaningful sense, I was taking a big risk. I mean, the risk for you would not to have acted because you felt the train was leaving the station. Yeah, and it was so clear uh, that you know, this was gonna happen. And this was so much fun, I mean, you know, I was a fanatic. I didn't believe in weekends. I didn't believe in vacation. 
Uh, my mom had to negotiate whether I'd come once a week for dinner. Uh, no matter who the guest was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But, but Warren, you have often said you still tap dance to work Absolutely. because you can paint with your own colors. Yeah. I, I, I get, I, I'm as excited about tomorrow in terms of what's going to happen as I was when I started. I was having a lot of fun when I started, but I'm having just as much fun uh, now. And, and I was, when I was here at Columbia, I, I was terrible fear. Of, it was impossible for me to speak in public. I mean, I wasn't able to do it. I actually read an ad in the New York Times. I went down to Midtown, signed up for a course, gave the guy a check, and then stopped payment on the check. I mean, it just, I just petrified. But finally, I, and, and actually, after you get through with here, hearing me today, maybe you'll wish I'd stayed afraid of public speaking, but that's another question. <laughs> then, when I got out to Omaha, I finally decided I just had to do it, so I gave a guy $100 in cash, and once I parted yeah. with $100 in cash, I, you know, I'd, I'd jump off the Grand Canyon to get my money's worth. So, it, it, <laughs> but it, cha it changed my life, but I would say this, don't fear failure. Almost everything that's turned out, I got turned down by Harvard, the best thing ever happened. Uh, among other, some good things that happened that didn't seem good at the time. Don't worry about and don't don't let it eat at your look back. Just keep going because you're going to have some things and forget them. Go go forward. <laughs> Wherever number three is. Both of you had a moment where you went out on your own, and I guess my question would be: If you were to do it all over again, you're in our shoes. What industry would that be in? Where would you start your own business today? I do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, for <laughs> <laughs> one thing, I'd be a failure at anything else, probably. I mean, I'm not gonna, no, I mean, I have had, I had fun when I was in my 20s, my 30s. Now I'm 86, and I'm having fun. And so, I I advise students as much as possible, look for the job that you would take if you didn't need a job. I mean, you know, don't sleepwalk through life, and don't don't say it's all going to be great. You know, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that, and you know, I'm just marking time to get to be older. That, as I've told people, that's like saving up sex for your old age. I mean, it just is not a, it is, it is not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. What are you urging them to do? I'll explain. It. Just what I'm talking about. Now it. It, it just, yeah. you really want to be doing what you love doing. And you can't necessarily find it on your first job. Right. But don't give up before you find it. Uh, we have some questions from Facebook. Uh, Warren, a, a central tenet of your investing is to invest for the long term. And this comes from Brian White, who says, how might Bill and Warren convince investors to think beyond short-term returns to encourage world-changing innovation? Well, I've spent my life trying to convince people of investing for the long term. And if, listen, if I knew how to double my money tomorrow, I'd probably invest for the short term too. But they, uh, I, I, uh, it's much, it's much easier to invest for the long term if you're just talking pure investment, because right. you know what's going to, in my view, be very high probability what's going to happen ten and twenty years from now in a major way. And I don't have the faintest idea of what's going to happen tomorrow or, or next week. Uh, but you, when you get, if you're talking about societal, uh, it, it's very tough because politicians face elections either every two years or six years. And the way, the way uh, particularly congressional districts have been organized, primaries have become more and more important. And 
So it's very hard to have uh, politicians think of something that's wonderful for the country for 20 years, but will cost them the election two years from now. And that, that's a basic problem in a democracy, and it gets to be more of a problem as, as we get arraigned, we've arranged congressional districts so the primary dominates because a very limited number of people turn out and their motive tend to be on the extremes of both parties. So it, uh, it's not well, easy. Whether you're going to make an investment in a company or whether you're going to buy the company, what are the factors that you have to be, that you're looking for? What test? I'm looking for durable competitive advantage. I'm looking for something that has a moat around it for a considerable period of time. And I'm looking for an, an honest and able management to run it because I don't know how to run it myself. And I'm looking for a, a purchase price that's not excessive. But it's better to pay a little too much for something that's a very good business uh, than it is to buy some bargain, uh, but really a company without much of a future. And I don't know, I don't have a ability to predict with a high, a high probability of success the future of most companies. So I'm looking for the exception. But the nice thing is, if there's thousands of companies out there, I really don't have to be right on a couple. I mean, it, it, it's exactly the opposite of, of baseball where you have called strikes and the pitcher's trying to throw it to you at the worst part of the strike zone for you. And if he succeeds in getting into that corner three times and you don't swing, you're out. And, and investing, it's, a no, it's an old called strike yeah. thing. So I can sit there all day and somebody can throw me one company after another. And finally, I got one in my sweet spot. Thank you both so much for being here. My question, again, sorry, is uh, a little bit on the political spectrum. I was wondering what you're both most hopeful about in this new political environment we have, and also what you're both most worried about. You want to take hope or worried, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that America will move ahead. It's been, you know, from the time I was born until now, the real GDP per capita of this country has gone up six for one. I mean, nobody ever dreamt that would be possible. And, and when you look at what's happened in this country over 240 years, you know, it, it, it's an absolute miracle. When I went to Columbia Business School in September 1950, one woman in the class. I mean, the, this country moves forward, and uh, you can't stop it. So I, I'm enormously up. I, I say the luckiest person born in the history of the world is the baby being born today uh, in this country. And we will go and, you know, everybody, half the country always is going to be somewhat unhappy, or close to half about the last election. But uh, I grew up in a household uh, in the late 1930s. My dad was very Republican. We, my sisters and I didn't get dessert unless we said something bad about Roosevelt. I mean, it was just, it was, re <laughs> it was required. <laughs> and I heard all these apocalyptic views about after his third term, there'll be no more elections. I've been hearing that all my life. And, you know, year after year after year with occasional hiccups and, and an occasional seizure like we had in 2008 and 9. But this country, it's all profit, folks. I mean, you know, when I came in, just think of what it would have been like in 1776. Nothing here. Yeah. And now we've got... And the velocity of change Oh, it just keeps moving. Day. I mean, guys like Bill, you know, they don't quit. Yeah. Bill, I know you share the optimism. What about concerns? Uh, well, the optimism uh, is partly that I think American innovation is strong. Uh, you know, support for research is by and large bipartisan. And so whether it's health breakthroughs or even energy breakthroughs. I think, you know, every year that goes by, we're going to have more of those things. Now, 
this administration is new enough. We don't know how their budget priorities will come out. You know, there are things like foreign aid, uh, which is a small part of the budget, about 30 billion a year, but that means the U.S. is the biggest, that every time there's new leadership, we have to go in and articulate uh, the benefits, it's well spent, it's not the image that people have in the past. And so right now, I think there's a lot of intensity uh, to make sure we get that message out and get both in terms of the executive branch and the Congress to maintain amazing things like the president's malaria initiative or PEPFAR, which is an HIV thing. These things started under President Bush. And so our foundations had a great working relationship with Democratic and Republican administrations. Most people wouldn't realize that US foreign aid as a percentage of the economy, which is generally how it's measured, reached its low point in 1999 uh, under the Clinton administration. Now, I'm not saying it was the administration. It was a mix of the administration and the Congress. Uh, then, uh, during those Bush years, it went up uh, fairly substantially. Now, the economy helped with that. But these initiatives were really amazing. And you know, I'm hopeful that maintaining or even growing uh, these initiatives will be a priority when there's a lot of talk about tax cuts and different spending activities. And so it is a bit up in the air uh, during these months ahead. And you've often made the point that no matter how big the private contributions are, sometimes in terms of tier, sheer scale, you need a government Yeah, somebody asked me today, you know, if PEPFAR, which is this AIDS program, uh, was canceled, wouldn't private philanthropy make up for it? Well, PEPFAR is over $5 billion a year. That is, this one aid program, which is a phenomenal thing that's saved uh, over 10 million lives, that's larger than our foundation, which is uh, the, the largest in the world. So there's no possibility the government sector, U.S., U.K., other European donors, uh, that's $130 billion a year in total that's uplifting these poor countries in health and education. And if we lose the consensus around that, if, if people draw inward too much, the, we will hurt progress and there will be millions of lives lost because of it. All right. And one thing that might be yeah. mentioned, Charlie, is that the difference between now and 60 or 70 years ago in the ability of really bright people, really innovative, really energetic people to get financed to do things is, is just dramatically better than, than it was at that time. So now, if you've got good ideas, and there's good ideas right in this crowd, and you've got energy, it's far easier to get financed to move forward those ideas than you could 50 or 60 years is ago. Is that because of the internet or crowdsourcing of what is it? It's just lots more capital lots around more capital. and people more optimistic yeah. about, people are very optimistic about and, business. And, but better ways to connect the two, yeah, the capital and those absolutely. and the it's ideas. It's dramatic. So you both have invested a great deal of money abroad, but there is a prevailing belief by some that there are pressing issues in America, there are poor people here, there are sick people here, and we should deal with that first before even tackling anything abroad. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, my own personal thought is that every life is of equal value. And uh, in many ways, In many ways, if you have a limited number of dollars, you actually can do more for more people outside the United States. And we do have greater resources here. 
for our 320 million people than exists around the world for seven plus billion people. So if, if you, you can improve the lot of more people by intelligently spending a billion dollars or any other number uh, in other areas of the world actually than here. And I get, uh, you know, I, coming from Omaha and having the money I have, people can say, well, why not spend it all in Omaha? You know, you grew up here and Omaha's done all kinds of things for you. And I absolutely acknowledge that. But in the end, if I've got X dollars to spend, I can make life better for more people if I can have it intelligently allocated in other parts of the world actually than the United States. And that draws a fair amount of criticism, but you know, I, I live with it because I, that's just what I believe. All lives have equal value is really the driving force Absolutely. behind I mean, the I, Foundation. I, I'm an accident. I, I, I won the ovarian lottery when I was born in the United States in 1930. It was 40 to one against me. I was male. That now it's 80 to one against being a male in the United States in 1930. I was just plain lucky. My life had been far different. Bill always said if I had been born a long time ago, I'd have been some animal's lunch because I can't run fast and I can't climb trees and everything else. And I'd be saying, I allocate capital, I allocate capital, you know. <laughs> it wouldn't work. And, you know, I was lucky. But 79 out of the 80 weren't as lucky as I was at that yeah. time. All right, let me go to another Facebook question. This is from uh, uh, Nadia Aqual says, how might Bill and Warren encourage innovation, particularly among teens, and young adults. How do you encourage innovation? Well, I think you have a market system that provides rewards for it. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we haven't. I mean, we, we, we have an incubator for innovation in the United States. And, you know, Bill can drop out of school. <laughs> Andy Grove can come from Hungary. And, right. oh, I mean, this it, it just welcomes it. And thank God. I mean, that's why we have the kind of prosperity that we have. I mean, the question of how it gets divided is a secondary question, and that does not get solved as well by the market system. But, but our system is just designed for it, and look at what has happened. Believe in. The two of you created, along with Melinda and others, created the Giving Pledge. Uh, how's that going? Going terrific, Bill. <laughs> it really is going terrific. Yeah, philanthropy is kind of a lonely thing. Bill, tell them what it is exactly. Yeah, okay, this is... Uh, you know, we love philanthropy of all types, uh, and part of the strength of American philanthropy is actually people with very little who uh, are incredibly generous. Here, though, we said for the people who are, are super lucky, uh, have over a billion dollars, we want a group who are working together, who are committed to give the majority of their wealth away, to learn from each other what's worked, what hasn't worked, uh, how do you involve your kids, uh, how do you hire staff, and they'll find areas they're working on together and cooperate, but we're not pulling any money. And we thought we'd get, you know, 20, 25 people together. And in fact, now uh, we're at 156. So uh, it is a wonderful yearly event. I've made some great people. I do think that the quantity and quality has gone up because we're getting together. We'll never be able to measure that in a direct way. And uh, we're making special efforts in China and India, because now we have a lot of wealth there that wasn't there before. And uh, in their own way, I think they, by having a strong philanthropic sector, that will help those countries and, and therefore help the world. What's interesting now, Bill and I are having dinner actually with the group tonight, for example, but if you go back 100 or 150 years, people got wealthy by making some money from the first oil refinery or steel mill and building another one, and Henry Ford would build a plant. To build cars and then they it would be from actually from retained earnings which eventually turned into cash 
Now you can get rich very young just by having an idea. Right. And you can get that idea monetized and capitalized in a way that you cannot believe. So we are particularly interested in getting younger people interested in, in philanthropy because they, there will be huge, there are huge fortunes by people that are now in their 20s and 30s. And just think of what those, the potential for that group. And so this thing has worked out way, way better, including getting younger people uh, to join us. Um, so are there any major life lessons that you two have learned through your personal experiences? Well, it's a very important question, and the more <clears throat> you will move in the direction of the people that you associate with. So, I, it's important to associate with people that are better than yourself. And actually, the most important decision many of you make, not all of you, will be the spouse you choose. Right. And uh, you really you want to associate with people who are the kind of person you'd like to be. You'll you'll move in that direction, and the most important person by far in that respect is your spouse. I can't overemphasize how important that is, and you're right. The, the friends you have, uh, they will form you as you go through life, and uh, uh, make some good friends, keep them for the rest of your life, but have them be people that you admire as well as like. <laughs> so we started with friendship, and, and we end with a question of friendship. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, all of you in this audience for coming here at Columbia University for the face Facebook audience, coming here to uh, Columbia where we have faculty and students from all of the disciplines at Columbia, uh, and they have participated. Most of all, uh, we want to thank uh, this afternoon, as we said, and have a conversation with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association, with editing by Matt Lenz and music by Pottington Bear. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities, and with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. Thank you.